Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we um, begin this journey into the gospel according to Luke, I pray that you will um, till the soil of our hearts. Help us to be receptive to the sweetness of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, We are diving properly in now to the Gospel of Luke. Um, Rich did an overview for us last week, um, which was fantastic. And we're going to really pull apart these first couple of chapters um, to start this next series off. Um, And I've been really excited about this. I don't know about you. I I love beginning a new teaching series and just having the opportunity to to preach. I love love the legwork. I love opening the scriptures. I love um, seeing what all this is about. And I love standing up here and and uh, talking to you, so it's, it's an absolute honour. Um, so where does, where does Luke begin? Where does this gospel start off? How does he open his gospel? He doesn't begin with a, a long genealogy like Matthew does in his gospel. He doesn't um, talk about the ministry of John the Baptist like Mark. He doesn't offer us a deep theological reflection on the cosmos like John. Luke begins with pregnancy. And I, and I, and I don't think that's a coincidence. The pregnant pause that Israel had endured for centuries before this moment in the biblical story, they were, they were desperately awaiting the fulfillment of God's ancient, long-standing promises to rescue and restore his chosen people. And it's now giving way to expectation as the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus are foretold. And I've not been pregnant and um, I don't expect to be pregnant anytime soon. But what I do know of pregnancy, what I've, what I've seen from people, women who are pregnant, is that it can be wildly uncomfortable. It can be challenging. Things change and transform. The body adapts to this new biological role. But there's also this incomparable joy of a new life. Now, the delivery of God's Redemptive promises to Israel at this point in the biblical story feels really, really overdue. The circumstances of the Jewish people are uncomfortable, they're painful. And the shalom of God seems so distant. And so Luke quite aptly makes us think of pregnancy. That straight away, we, as we begin the gospel, we're starting to anticipate the birth of something new, something long awaited. And so in these opening scenes of Luke's gospel, the the new season of God's intervention, it begins with the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth, who is is old in age, and this supernatural conception of a virgin called Mary. And throughout the Bible, we see again and again that God outworks his plans, outworks his purposes through those he chooses. From Adam to Abraham to Moses to Deborah to David, now to Elizabeth and to Mary, and God's modus operandi, I like that phrase, I've never been able to say it up front before, so I thought I'd throw that in. God's modus operandi uh, is to place human beings, to place people right at the center of his activities. From the naming of animals in the Garden of Eden, to the covenant promise made to Abraham and his descendants, to the parting of the Red Seas, 
to the anointing of judges, kings, priests, and prophets to the nation of Israel. And now, in the most miraculous and peculiar way, God himself enters into the story, into the human story. And Mary, this young, innocent, lowly, virgin girl, becomes the chosen vessel. And her son will become the God-man who will change the course of human history forever. Which is incredible in itself, I think. And when we look back over church history, we look back through the development of the church's teachings and traditions. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who has got a whole window dedicated to her here in our building, and you look around at the churches, and she's quite a prominent figure. She becomes held in really high regard in the church. And without going into some of the, the difficulties of that, the obvious danger with becoming too overawed with the mother of Jesus is to miss the point that the incarnation, the birth of the Savior, is an unparalleled kairos moment. When the Son of God stepped down from the eternal glory that he shared with the Father and the Spirit to pioneer the mission of God on earth. On the other hand, the danger of disregarding Mary completely in our teaching and our theology is that we miss out completely on the significance of this wonderfully unique and incomparable mystery that, of, that God was born to an unmarried virgin 2,000 years ago. So how do we grasp a sound understanding of these opening chapters of Luke's gospel? If we cast our minds back to last week, for those that were listening... Um, we begin with why Luke has written his gospel. From Mitch's talk, we looked at those first four verses, I think it was four verses, where he's writing, Luke says, introducing his gospel, he says, the events that have been fulfilled among us so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So Luke wants us to see the pregnancies of Elizabeth and Mary and the foretelling of John the Baptist and Jesus through these angelic visitations as part of the fulfillment of, of God's plans and purposes. And then, so, we need to ask ourselves, why do we need to understand these things? How do they enrich the confidence that we have in, in, in our faith in Jesus Christ? So let's begin by looking at what is being fulfilled in these opening chapters of Luke's gospel. Firstly, we have the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth and his place within the mission of God. Verses 15 to 16 say, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to their Lord, uh, to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare, prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. So John is to be a priestly prophetic man who, like Elijah in the Old Testament, will be predominantly concerned with the turning of a wandering people back to their God. John the Baptist will prepare the way of the Lord. He will shape the cultural um, and spiritual environment for the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah. And there are parallels here with the Old Testament prophet Malachi, who similarly brought a message of repentance to the people of Israel. And Malachi in chapter 4 says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, the arrival of John the Baptist is something that the Old Testament anticipated centuries before. 
And it's now been fulfilled through Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah. John the Baptist will grow and pioneer this ministry of repentance and hope through the waters of baptism, challenging the sin of Israel. And in doing so, paved the way for Jesus. Secondly, the angel Gabriel reveals to Mary that she has found favor with God and that she will give birth to a son. And for some mysterious reason, we're not told the whys, but for some mysterious reason, Mary found unmerited, unwarranted favor in the eyes of God. And she's called to fulfill his divine purposes. And the most significant thing here is that this long-awaited Messiah, this glimmer of hope that fermented slowly and mysteriously through the Old Testament is about to take place. Isaiah chapter 7, I think it is, talks about the virgin um, giving birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And the angel Gabriel says here in in our chapter this morning, verses 31 to 33, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Interestingly, the the theologian um, N.T. Wright says that actually the most explosive thing within all the emphasis that Luke places in this narrative is on the political and the royal meaning of this new child. And it can pass us by, I think, But whoever this baby Jesus would be, whoever this baby Jesus would grow up to be and do, the expectation is that he would become a new king of Israel. And of course, when you start to think about that, that means that this new king of Israel would have to overthrow the Roman Empire. He would have to take the place of Caesar. This is is big stuff. And Wright also says, perhaps that the church has actually gotten so overly concerned with the miraculous pregnancy of a virgin, because he says, and I quote, deep down, we don't want to think that there might be a king who could claim this sort of absolute allegiance. And we can miss this, I think. But the emphasis in Luke's gospel in particular is that this is the birth of a new king of Israel. And the phrase in verse 33 says, his kingdom will never end. And that's not common in Jewish thought either. And again, it's something we can brush over. But what we're seeing here is something unprecedented, something that's not seen, been seen before, something bigger than the human imagination alone could conceive. God is doing something through this child that will have implications for the whole world, for every person, for every one of us. And that will have eternal consequences. Also, very interestingly, Luke wants us to notice, and again, we can, we can, we can miss this entirely if we're, if we're not careful, but Luke delicately stresses that this child is not some kind of demigod. He's not some kind of semi-divine offspring like we hear so much about in pagan mythology. Mary was not, and he's, Luke's quite clear in how he articulates this, Mary was not to be impregnated by God in some kind of sexual way. But like we, like we do read of in, in Roman mythology and Greek mythology, but rather the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit will foster this divine child within her womb. 
So we're not reading about a Hercules here or an Achilles. This is something completely unprecedented. This child to be named Jesus will be of the same essence of the Lord God of Israel. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together. There's so much I could say. <laughs> There's a few other things as well, let me assure you. Um, I'm just aware of time. But there's Trinitarian themes here. There's also something really significant about Jesus' name. In, in, its, Hebrew, uh, in its Hebrew form, um, the name Jesus means because he will save them from their sins. And Luke is so, he, there's so many details, so many threads here that we can, we can rush past in the narrative when we just pick up the Bible and read it through. There's so much detail here. But what I want to look at and um, what Andy Kindly read for us um, is the, the song of Mary, the, the Magnificat, this wonderful few verses um, that we read of in, in Luke's Gospel. That Unlike Zechariah's, Zechariah's belief um, a few verses earlier, when, when Gabriel tells him that Elizabeth would be pregnant, unlike his response, which is quite doubtful, uh, and if you read the narrative, you'll, you'll pick up on this, but Mary responds to Gabriel with the words, I am the Lord's servant. And Mary, when, when, we, when we really look at the character of Mary, we see in Mary a model of humility. We see a model of openness to the word of God. And her song, which has been become known as the Magnificat, which means glorifies, is perhaps one of the most famous and commonly recited parts of the New Testament. It's a song of praise, it's a song of joy, it's a song of faith, it's a song of hope. And Mary is so overjoyed by the fact that she is called by God, that she's found favor with God, that she's playing a part in God's mission, and that God is redeeming Israel from all its uh, pitiful states of se uh, separation from God. She just overflows with this song. And like all the Jews in the first century, Elizabeth and Mary, they were hanging on this thread of hope. This whisper that one day all the prophets, all the things that the prophets said would come true. That God would do what he said he would do. Mary is pouring her heart out here in praise because she wholeheartedly believes that this long-awaited moment has arrived. Not only has it arrived, it's happening now and it's happening through her. Can you imagine that? So these verses, and there's so much more we could say, but these verses, let me reassure you, they are packed to the rafters with themes that resonate with the Old Testament. And so Luke's gospel opens with a big bang. It's like he's kicking the door down. There's latent hope, the latent potential, the latent joy, this imagery of, of being pregnant and something new coming to life. And it's this rich detail, and it's to encourage us, the readers of the gospel, the most excellent theologians, that's us. <laughs> We're not believing in something that just sounds nice. 
There's something that's just sweet on our lips and ends there. We're not believing in something that's doubtful and a little bit implausible. But we're believing in something that is wonderfully supernatural and credible at the same time. It's the, it's the ordinary and the extraordinary. Who would not want to believe in that? And even in these opening chapters, we're beginning to see these threads, these ancient threads of prophecy being woven together in the foretelling of this baby, the only begotten son of God, the one who would reign over the house of Israel forever, whose kingdom will never end. So what does this have to say to us today? On a very basic level, I, I, I hope, which is Luke's purpose and agenda in, in writing the gospel, that even in these first couple of chapters, it starts to give you some confidence that actually the biblical witness that the whole story of Scripture is coherent, that the Old Testament leads into the New Testament, they marry beautifully together. That thousands of ideas and themes and prophecies are knitted together across 66 different books, penned by about 40 different authors over a span of thousands of years, and these, they tell one beautifully coherent story of God. But most of all, I hope it gives you an increasing confidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. That this might lead you on to deeper levels of belief and trust in him. And the gospel, which is the power for, of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. How am I doing? I'm not beating Richard's record yet. I'll keep going. Uh, so here are a few more specific things that I wanted, I've just been dwelling on and drawing from from these opening chapters. I think I've got these on a slide somewhere. Firstly, the joy of being chosen. Colon, overcoming fear. The Bible is jam-packed full of stories. It's made up essentially of stories of men and women and children who are called by God to play very diverse roles and parts in his plans and his purposes on earth. And like we've said already, Elizabeth and Mary are two people from this whole list that are chosen to play a particular role in God's mission. And what we see as we journey through the Gospels is that Jesus comes, as, as Richard was saying earlier, to fling wide the gates for all nations, for all people, that through him and him alone, God is inviting every person to repent and receive forgiveness of sin. And at the heart of the Gospel of Jesus is that God promises blessing. He promises favor upon all that believe in the only begotten Son of God. And all those who believe in Jesus, God chooses and those he chooses, God calls to become active participants in the mission of God, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the hard reality, I think, as I was dwelling on this, as we increasingly feel in our society today, as the Bible tells us that many are invited, but few are chosen. But before Jesus begins his ministry, we see Mary as this wonderful model of someone who hears the calling of God for her life. And she receive it, receives it with absolute humility and faith. And there was nothing Mary did. There was no amount of hard work or soul searching or introspection or good deeds that meant she was entitled to play this role. 
All we know is that very simply, Mary was humble. She was open to God. And for this very reason, God favored her and blessed her. Her humility was the very reason why she was overjoyed by the fact that she was called by God. As she says in the Magnificat, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the servant, uh, the humble state of his servant. And so I think it's no coincidence that when the John, John the Baptist arrive, uh, arrives, uh, when he grows up, when Jesus arrives and grows up, and they, they begin their ministries together, we see at the heart of both their messages this call, this continued call to humility and repentance from sin, from pride, from self-sufficiency. And Mary, I think, perfectly models this through her lowly posture, her, her humble character and her openness to God, which sets the bar for all of us, I think. And interestingly, I found this really interesting, the, the agitation that Mary experienced when the angel appeared to her was not because of the fact there was an angel hovering over her, but actually it was because of the nature of the angel's message Greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. And I don't know about you, but I've always read this and thought, of course she's going to be terrified because there's a big freaky winged angelic figure hanging over her. Of course she's going to be terrified. But what actually the Bible tells us is the big deal for her is trying to think, I'm quoting here, trying to think what the angel could mean. The fear that she encountered, the anxiety that she encountered was because of what the angel was speaking to her. You know, how can this be right that the Holy One, the God of Israel, extends his favor to somebody like me? How common is it for people to overcome, to be overcome with a fear that the concept of God, the concept of being able to relate to him, how often are we overcome by that fear? How often do you wrestle with the simple truth that you are favored in God's eyes, that you're blessed, that God is with you? And not because of anything you've done or anything you haven't done, but simply because through his love, God extends his gracious invitation to you in the form of Jesus Christ. And perhaps this is the hurdle that God is asking you to get over this morning. Overcoming fear. Secondly, there's the joy of being called. Call on, overcoming doubt. It should be on the screen. Uh, Gabriel's announcement uh, to Mary is not, it's not just a nice, comfortable moment. Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it was his prior notice that Mary's been called to play a vital role in the birth, the protection, the nurturing of the long-awaited saviour of God's people. You don't really think about that, do you? That she spent years weaning him, teaching him to walk, teaching him to ride his bike. Um, <laughs> it, it, but incredibly, Mary offers no resistance to Gabriel's message but she does ask for answers. In, what in, in her mind, seems like an impossible scenario. She says, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And I get this. You know, I, I understand this sense of doubt. It's so easy, isn't it, to rule ourselves out, to reduce our hopes to nothing because we just feel so unworthy. Or actually, the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this moment of time are just impossible to overcome. Why would God use me? It doesn't make sense. But believing in Jesus and recognizing your call in Christ, how often do you find yourself there? How often do you contain yourself? Perhaps your logic, you know, this doesn't make sense to me in my mind. Or perhaps you become apathetic, comfortable. Or you struggle with the inconvenience of the timing. It doesn't seem to work right now, but thank you, God. 
But Mary actually is an example of what can be achieved when we open ourselves up to the possibilities of God's miraculous power in our lives. Humility precedes chosenness. It's a foundation of faith. But when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, faith becomes a foundation to our calling. Knowing that in your strength, yes, you are limited. You're restricted. Of course you are. We all are. But with God, all things are possible. And what I love about Mary's song is that actually, and this is something that struck me as I, was, as I was just grappling with the text, it's a reminder to all of us to embrace the moment. If you're like me, it's so easy to get wrapped up in, in, in the what is to come. You know, where's this all going? What's the future? What's this? We, we, you know, we, we create these kind of horizons, these false horizons. Of, That's where I'm going. That's what I'm excited about. And we lose sight of the here and now. But what we can't escape when we read through the Magnificat and perhaps pray it to, uh, and kind of own the words ourselves is that the joy that flows from Mary is the very moment of God's revelation. And of course, I'm sure Mary at some point really wrestled with the long-term expectations of what her calling was. But she didn't waste a second in giving God glory for all that he was doing. And so the call to Christian discipleship it begins now and it continues to be a calling daily to take up our cross and follow him. And then finally, the creativity of our response, colon, overcoming stagnation. Now, Mary was probably poorly educated, but she was clearly familiar with God's promises, clearly, clearly familiar with the scriptures, in chapter 2, we get told that she was a deep thinker who spent time dwelling upon God and all that he was doing through her. And so Mary overflowed with praise, and she offered this, offered this absolutely incredible, beautiful poem of praise to God, this song of praise to God. And I get that as, as British people, on the most part, perhaps you know, as Anglicans, on the most part, we can get so immersed in the intellectual side of faith, the kind of I've got it all together side of faith that we lose sight of the beauty, the creativity, the color, the emotions, the mystery, the grandeur of God. And so I was thinking, how, like Mary, might we translate the joy of our salvation into, into art, into creativity, using our bodies, using our skills, using our imagination? How are you testifying to the beauty of God, the wonder of his grace? How might we sweep aside apathy and stagnation in our lives? You know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church was at the forefront of the arts. I mean, look at, look at our buildings, look at the stunning hymns that people wrote, the masterpieces of music, the pioneering education and medicine, the revolutionary imagination that guided the sciences. What have we lost that we need to rekindle today? Where is the joyful creativity in our worship and our prayer and our witness? How might God be calling you to enliven the church's creativity in this season? If you're able, can I invite you to stand?
just as the band come up again, let's just, um, can I invite you to close your eyes? Perhaps something particular has grabbed you. Holy Spirit, I invite you now just to come and minister to us. Let us hear again the call of the gospel in our lives. Let us encounter the joy and the wonder again of what it means to be saved. Let us encounter the joy of what it means to be active members of your body, participants in your mission. Lord, will you inspire in us again a creativity, an imagination to be the colorful, joyful, creative people that you designed us to be. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us when we're lukewarm. Forgive us when we express a dull faith to the world around us, when actually this is the most wonderful, beautiful, freeing truth that we can ever hope or belong to. just as we were praying beforehand, the group of us that were praying, there was, there was a few prophetic words that people were sharing. One of them was this image of a, a huge bowling ball rattling down the center aisle here and crashing through everything. And, and the message being, when God is doing his thing, let's learn to get out of the way. A wonderful part of Mary's story is that she embraced God's movement, embraced God's work. She didn't get in the way. Another word was the fact that there's a tangible sense of God doing some really deep, real things in our lives and in the church at the moment. It's not surface level, superficial stuff. God's doing some really deep things. And again, the other side of Mary's life and her vocation was that God did a very deep, personal, internal thing with her. So as much as she moved out of the way to let God do his thing, she was very much a participant in God's work. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'll come and stir our hearts again now. Soften our hearts, open our minds Live in our imaginations. And whether it's overcoming fear, whether it's overcoming doubt, whether it's overcoming stagnation, 